This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the New Ethiopian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the New European Podcast. My name's Richard Porritt and I'm joined by Matt Easy Withers Withers. I am very much here. And Cash, show me the money, Boyle. Welcome, hello, as oh. last week. <laughs> no, I'm going to stick with that, Cash. I'm sticking with it. Let's do it. Uh, it's only a matter of time before you're walking down the, the empty streets <laughs> of lockdown Britain. And people are shouting that at you. You realise that, don't you? I, I'm I'm excited for that. Only if it's accompanied by like sort of the throwing of money, like a making it rain kind of scenario, but without well, like like an like an '80s football match where two pences get thrown at referees, that sort of thing. I mean, I, I was thinking more notes because I think the coins <laughs> are quite painful. Yes, I agree. Well, absolutely. If people want to throw money at as they can, they can do that in our new European merch shop. That would be a good way to. Um, to, to throw money at us. Uh, welcome, one and all. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we will start with the news, and it is always newsy, of course. And if you get your news only from here, check out some other places as well, um, like the New European website, for example. Uh, we've then got a guest, Suna Erdem, who is uh, a um, uh, often seen in the pages of the New European, will be joining us uh, in a few minutes. Matt, what, what, are, you, what are you going to be talking about with Suna? Uh, she's got a very interesting article in the print edition this week. Uh, is Turkey changing tack? It's quite interesting. There's actually been um, a key government figure in Turkey who's out the door in the past couple of weeks after many of the governing party's own MPs couldn't bear his rudeness and, and arrogance. Uh, I, I don't know if there's uh, any possible kind of links we could draw to what's happened in our own own <laughs> politics. So it's, it's a really fascinating read. So I'm looking forward to talking to her about that. Okay, she'll be with us very soon. And then, 
we will I think we've got a new name for Kasha's little little bit that we enjoyed last week where she gets angry and rants. I like let's just talk about this quickly now. I really like Cash and Burn. What yeah, do you guys do. think? Yeah. Is that, that it? That was the one I saw. Well, I saw a few and they were all good suggestions, but as soon as I saw that, I thought, damn, I wish I'd have thought of that. Yeah. Yeah, cash and burn. And I thought we could get the Manic Street Preachers to do the jingle, Matt. Could you could you sort that out? Um uh, yeah, I mean I'm I don't I'm not close to them. Um I once I once found myself chatting to James Dean Bradfield outside a pub in the Punk Canner area of Cardiff a few well, years ago. Well, there you go. Now. That's that is more than I've done with regards to Manic Street Preachers. I wondered if they could re-record Slash and Burn from <laughs> their from their first album, Generation Terrorist, but do cash and burn. We can but ask. Right. Well, you get onto that, and uh, I'm sure Nicky Wire will be up up for it. Um, they weren't big fans of Europe actually on that first album, so maybe they won't. Who knows? <laughs> uh, right. Let's get to the news. We're all going to be going into new tiers, um, tiers for tiers, um, as of December the second. We this news as we record this news is still coming out. Um, I think I think all three of us are going to be in tier two. Is that correct? You in you're in London, Cash. You will be Matt. Yeah. You too. Yep. Yeah. And me here out in the out in the sticks in in the east of England, also in in tier two. Uh, there was a bit of chaos because the us journalists again got blamed for leaking on this, um, but, but actually it was just the government sent out the website address early before it was in the House of Commons. But we got the blame for that, and that immediately crashed. I then liked um, I liked Matt Hancock's notes that had question marks next to them throughout. I don't know quite what that means. Just haven't decided yet. But nonetheless, you're reading it out in the House of Commons. Or whether his advisors wanted him to increase his intonation at the end of every sentence. I'm like an sure. Australian. Yeah. <laughs> Sound more Australian, <laughs> Hat Mancock. Maybe that's what they were thinking. I'm not sure. But, I don't um, think that's going to help him. I think I, I, <laughs> I, I, I sense that that's not the solution to his many problems. Well, hey, it's worth a try. We should send him with a, an inflatable crocodile under his arm, a hat with corks on, and maybe, you know, you could, like Crocodile Hancock. Like, like a didgeridoo and several, <laughs> sort of like, several other kind of like manifestations of like Australian culture. Maybe that's what the Australia style deal is. That we, we, we hear yeah, so like much about like an Australian style point system. Like we're maybe just gonna model everything on Australia, pretty Patel, Matt Hancock, the whole the whole shebang. This is this is working. After last week, because last week we um we, we, we suggested that Keir Starmer should try and ride two horses at once. This week, Matt Hancock, um we we've met on numerous occasions. I interviewed you when you were when you were just a glint in George Osborne's eye. And I'm listen, come to me. I've got some advice for you. Dress like an Australian. Maybe even start talking like one. And um, crocodile wrestling is a good idea, I think. And maybe a can of Fosters at the dispatch box. You're not really allowed to do that unless you're the Chancellor. But he could, he could probably get away with it. And then when, when, the health, uh, when, when there's health questions, he could just answer it with a didgeridoo. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's that's a cogent, cogent approach. I I don't see any problems with that whatsoever. And actually, I think that could improve his electability. <laughs> it definitely would. It definitely would. Um, anyway, cash <laughs> back sure. to back to reality. Um, <laughs> and what do you think about these tiers? And is there really any point in them? Because we had tiers before, and they didn't work, did they? I mean, I, I think first the first thing I would say is that is tier one even a thing? Does it even exist? Because yes, I've got the figures here. It's the, the Isle of Wight. Um, 
Cornwall and one other place? All Tory seats, but uh, we won't read into that. Yes, uh, 713,573 people in England will go into tier one. That is just 1% of the English English population. Uh, 32,226,170 will go into tier two. That's 57%. And uh, 23,347,218, that's 42%, will go into tier three. Of course, children will have been born, uh, so those figures won't be absolutely um, spot on by the time you listen to this. Good disclaimer. Um, I think I think like with the tears, they, they I suppose people want the restrictions like the lockdown to be lifted. So because it is being lifted and we're graduating back into these tier or this tier system, people, I think, well, to the most part, are seeing it as a positive. But by the same token, with a caveat of how different will things actually be and what does it mean going forward? And, you know, I suppose the, the main difference with tier two, I suppose at the moment, in terms of even me and my own personal life, the only thing I can see that it will really affect me unless I'm going to die soon um, is that the gyms will reopen. That's, that's pretty much all I can see in terms of what I'd be doing anyway. So I suppose people will see it as a positive because the lockdown two or whatever is, um, is ending. But also, I mean, we are going into what are still sizable restrictions and this is by no means over or this is no, this change is no in no way a signal that the, the 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 concerns and the danger are over yeah i think i mean i was looking at the, the tier two i mean here in the east we were it was a bit of a um a, a towing cost as to whether you know as far as we were led to believe between one and two i'm not sure that's quite the case now looking at who is in one uh, mm. and and the, and the figures there are the central suffolk is very low um but there's very little changes apart from I can go to non-essential shops now, but I have to say that I don't go do much non-essential shopping anyway. You know, um, I, I'm, I, what, not certainly not in store. So I, mean, I, I suppose the other big change is because we can go back to the, we can go back to the pub, um, yes. but indoors only if we are with people from our own household, which was the case before we and went you've got to buy the, a meal. You've got to get a substantial meal. A substantial you know, so. meal. I was like, I, when I read that, I thought, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't go in and order like a portion of calamari no. or like just a portion of chips? It's nope. because um, last time we were in the tiers, um, some places really tested the regulations over whether a bag of crisps or a sausage roll meant that they were serving food. Um, I, what was interesting when we last had these tiers is we had the restrictions on only being inside with people from your own households. And, um, you know, I admit, I, I, I was in the pub quite a lot in that period. And my word, there were Not some strange households yeah, around. That's that, exactly. <laughs> it's like impossible to police. What are, you ask, what are you going to ask people to do? Like, you can come to the pub, but you can only sit inside if you present your birth certificate. Like, it's like... Like what, it's what, a household what of six 57-year-old there men. There really were. There were some incredibly kind of egregious examples. Because uh, I would be I would be sat in um in, in, in my local in, in Hackney and look around and think, those people don't live together. You know, and there's no pretense here. Because it would either be, as you say, this really weird demographic of, of middle-aged um men. You know, it could be a, a household of divorcees or something. It seems unlikely. Um <laughs> Or you would get the lost husbands club. <laughs> oh, you, I, I... you would get people walking in 
you know, 15, 20 minutes after the, after the rest of the group, hugging, shaking hands and saying, my God, I've not seen you for months. And you'd be thinking, well, that must <laughs> be, a, that, that <laughs> like is an like a... enormous house that you live in. Yeah. <laughs> like you, it, 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 there are just some things that are so personal that it's impossible to police them so obviously you impose these restrictions but I think it's just a bit of a semantic exercise almost like the government's trying to cover its own back because it's like we're saying this is what you can do inside and there are restrictions but they're not being enforced in any way and it's impossible to police them so the sort of the you know the divorcee the dad divorcee club are going to be you know running amok and hackney next Friday like no one's business and good luck to them you know, I mean, I we'll have to buy a meal. I mean, my view is if pub, pubs that serve substantial meals should probably be avoided. Um, so, you know, I'm not going back to the pub. I like to go into the pub for a couple of pints. I don't want to go in. And, if I'm going for a meal, I go to a restaurant. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm picturing lots of guys like in their 50s, like Matt said, potential divorcees, all with big mixed grills from like yeah. Weatherspoons or Green King or whatever. That's, that's can, what I'm picturing. All you can eat salads. Oh, you can eat From salad. a harvester. You know the harvesters, so whatever, you, the you, Toby Carveries. You can't have those anymore, though, can you? you oh, you, yeah, because of the native outside. Oh, yeah, yeah you, can't, uh, you can't go and get a buffet anymore. Uh, no, you can't. You're quite right. Well, there's, that's no great loss to uh, Britain's culinary experience, I don't think. Um, so, yeah, no, no pubs. I mean, I, you know, that is, that is sad. Non-essential shops. I, I honestly, I only think I buy essential things. What are non-essential things? Clothes, I think, is. I mean, obviously, clothes well, are, if are seen, essential. But if I you'd mean, seen me with no clothes on, Matt, you would <laughs> not think that clothes were non-essential. I can tell you that much. It's like you're advocating some kind of nudist policy. Um, which... It wouldn't be the first time you've tried to push this on the podcast, Matt Withers. Um, I'm just thinking, there are some shops around here that remained open during lockdown, which you've got to say were pretty borderline yeah. in terms of, I mean, there's a stationery shop at the top of my street. It just sells stationery and fairly high-end um, stationery. Um, I mean, people can get away, you know, for four weeks without a kind of really How nice did that stay open? I love the argument that like a bespoke fountain pen is essential, like... Yeah. I like that, I love that argument. And it wasn't even like a Ryman's, it was like an independent store, was it, Matt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I presume that we were working on the basis that nobody was checking up. I mean, what have, has anyone seen a COVID marshal? They were supposed to be a thing, weren't they? They were. I haven't. Yeah, I think I they're haven't. as mythical as tier one. I think they don't exist either. We have had some shops closed down, though. I mean, it was extraordinary, extraordinary when the um, PlayStation 5. Uh, was first on sale last week that Game and other stores, I mentioned Game because the example here in Norwich was a game store, opened for click and collect. Okay, well, you know, I can sort of, I can, I can kind of live with that, it's fine. But a lot of these places are inside shopping centres, so you've got massive queues of hundreds of people sneaking through a shopping centre waiting, waiting for a PlayStation 5 now. I... You know, and my son would certainly disagree with me, but as far as PlayStation 5s go, they are definitely not essential, are they? No, absolutely not. But then I, I guess it's it's one of those things where it would give people a lot of joy and during like a really Oh no, joy. We're not we're not in the we're not in the we're business. Not in the joy of business. Joy. Um, cynically, it's just the PlayStation 5s make a lot of money and they generate a lot of revenue, and so you know, things can be relaxed. No, you're wow. not. I guess you're not going to see, you know, a game store be closed down by some very like stern-looking sort of enforcement officers, marshals slash potential jobs worth type people, sort of looking quite stern. I feel like, I don't know, certain stores would probably fly above that. Well, 
It, it is weird, though. You're right. It, it's, it is a strange one. It, and I feel so. I do feel sorry for the independents yeah. um, because a lot of independents, you know, I, I've been I've been contacted by independent clothes shops. They, they've got to shut down. But, you know, M&S can stay open and they're selling clothes there, you know. And I, I, I'm not trying to take money out of anyone's pocket and I'm not trying to stop people buying clothes. They're essential, I think, especially in November. But, not um, according to Matt. But you know, not, not according to Rudy Nudie Withers, <laughs> cheeky boy. Um, but, um, but you know, it, it does, there has been an element of one rule for one. So I'm delighted that shops can reopen, whether it's frivolous purchases, which I don't like, or indeed essential stuff. Um, but it's it, it, it's a shame for for a lot of boozers because you know they can't serve food or they never have or and they still can't open and they you know they it just it, it just feels awful for them. But I think the point that that has really stuck with me and I don't know what you think, Matt is is this just a sort of a, a sort of COVID hokey cokey a COVID hokey cokey because <laughs> we're going to go in and out of lockdowns it seems even with the tier systems because they don't seem to work. Yeah, and it's, I, gonna, it's gonna be like this until we've all had the jab. Yeah. Know? And and they're not they're not being they're not being completely honest about that, but essentially it's gonna be every three weeks. We're broadly gonna stay in, in the same tier. There might be one or two changes at, at, at the fringes, but yeah, until we've all had the jab, then this this is going to be the normal. Yeah, and just briefly before we before we move on. Um, Christmas. We've got a few more details about that. We were talking about whether we should just cancel Christmas last week, of course. We now know some of the details. Um, what, do, what do we think about that? Because I, I honestly think if we weren't, if we, if we weren't in a country with the political system that we have, so for example, if we, if this was a God forbid, by the way, I'm not advocating this, but if we were living in some kind of dictatorship, we wouldn't be opening up at all at Christmas, would we? No, not at all. I mean, I think there's a real argument um, to say that there's, well, it's, it's, it's hard to sort of advocate opening up for Christmas when the same sort of leniency wasn't applied to other significant holidays, like in terms of other religions, like Diwali, um, was it Eid as well? I, I can't remember if it was, Eid, no, there was, there was, which holiday was it? I've t- uh, Diwali, Diwali was Diwali. Uh, in lockdown, yeah. In lockdown. So for just to use that example, I mean, there's an argument to say that this, the leniency that's been afforded to Christmas mm. feels to me like it's only, it would only be afforded to Christmas if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I just, uh, the, I guess the concern is that we go, we crash straight back into a January lockdown. Now, to, frankly, January lockdown sounds pretty good to me because of all the months of the year, that is the one that is most like a most like a Monday morning hangover, isn't it? So you know, why don't we just all stay in, and not worry about it, but. Um, but 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 people's lives are at risk. So you know. But who wants to be? No one wants to be the prime minister that cancels uh, Christmas. And I think that is playing as big a part in that decision as any um, you know any any health insight or. or oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like. I think he's very much concerned. Boris is very much concerned with how will this look in my memoir. Like Absolutely. it's very like. You know, and, and and like you say, no one wants to be the Prime Minister of the Council of Christmas. I mean, he even came up with the slogan of, um, what did he say? It is the season to be jolly, but is the season to be jolly careful or something like that? <laughs> yeah. And I, I just like, whatever semblance of like, my soul still actually lives in a pure way, just died in that moment. I was like, oh, Boris, yeah. this is awful. But but like, you're, you're totally right. I feel like he's making this decision with health in mind, 
not really, but entirely with the idea of, oh, I don't want to be remembered as the prime minister who did that. Cool. Right, Matt, before we go any further, I need to talk to you about free trade, okay? I know I've been banging on about this off air, but what, basically, investing is one of the best ways to grow your wealth over the long term, okay? However, high commissions, clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it complicated for people to start. Uh, meanwhile, trillion-dollar companies get built and very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free trade is on a mission to change that by breaking down these barriers and opening up stock investing to everyone. While other brokers charge up to like 12 quid, believe it or not, for every trade, free trade doesn't charge any commission fees. So you can invest and keep more of your profits. It's an award-winning investment app. It's used by more than 250,000 people already. It's FCA authorized and it's F. SCS protected, and it lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, investment trusts, all without commission. Free Trade has been the winner of the British Bank Awards two years in a row, 2019 and 2020, for best online trading platform. It's a really intuitive design. It makes investing simple for any experience level, beginners, me, uh, and experts alike. You can start investing from just two pounds. Free Trade doesn't offer any speculative products such as uh, CFDs, spread betting, or products with uh, leverage. They don't do any day trading. It's all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model, and there's no hidden fees or inflated spreads or anything like that. So you can sign up for a general investment account, uh, or you can sign up for a stocks and shares ISA, which is what I've been I've been using. Um, you can sign up for Free Trade Plus uh, with more advanced order types, bigger stocks, uh, big, you know, bigger, wide, more stocks available. Um, and there's also some uh, self-invested personal pensions that are going to be launched soon. SIPs, I think, is, uh, is what they call them in the trade. Now, I've been using, I'm on it now, in fact, on the app, Matt, and it's, it's on my phone. And I can track my investments pretty much minute by minute. I can see on there... The, the, the shares that I've bought that are in my portfolio, the ones that are doing well are the ones that I will obviously focus on. Uh, you, can, you can buy stuff from the English, the British Stock Exchange or the US Stock Exchange. There's a massive wide variety of stuff there. Um, there's, uh, it shows you your activities. It shows you, you know, you link it to a bank account. It's really easy. And what I also say is the customer service is fantastic. If you've got any questions, you can literally just type into someone who's waiting at the other end and they get you your answer back really quickly. It is super, super cool. And for you, new European listener, there is a special offer. So go to freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. And if you register and fund your account, you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between three pounds and 200 pounds. You could get uh, one of the, one of the, Big traders, Greg's, everyone loves a sausage roll, right move, even Apple. So for more information, go to freetrade.io. That's freetrade.io forward slash Brexit. Now, of course, when you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. The free trade app, Matt, is really fantastic. I would, uh, I would absolutely encourage people to to take a look and use that um use that url to get your free trade i'll check it out let's stop there because matt i think our guest is with us yes i think we've been joined by and and be ready to um correct my pronunciation uh, sooner adam um yes that'll do thank you oh, oh I'm, I'm chuffed with that <laughs> well done um, 
Well, we've just been talking um, Christmas and we thought with Christmas coming, it was time to talk turkey. And you've written, um, uh, uh, no apologies for that. Um, you've written about um, Turkey and a key government figure who, as I said earlier in the podcast, is out of the door after many of the governing party's own MPs couldn't bear his rudeness and arrogance, which will sound very familiar to people listening. So, Sina, tell us about, about Turkey, about Berat el and why his departure matters. Well, he was, um, I think, as I said, he was about as unlamented as uh, Dominic Cummings when he left. I mean, he's, um, he's the president's son-in-law. Um, he married um, the president's oldest daughter, uh, Esther, um, in 2004, when he worked for um, a big conglomerate, energy, um, textile, loads of things. And um, he's been slowly groomed by um, Erdogan to, he's almost been seen as an heir apparent, apparent really. He was then, well, he worked for this company, Charlotte Holding, and he was brought in closer and closer to the senior positions in that company um, until 2007 when he became the CEO um, because Erdogan was friends with the head of the company. And um, since then he's been, uh, after that, this company then brought up um, uh, Sabah newspaper and uh, um, ATV television and that was the start of Erdogan's gra grasping the reins of power in the media and that was partly understandable because the entire media was against him, the secularist media was against him in the first few years of Erdogan's power. So he's been in a key position in a media company that supported Erdogan and then um, in 2015 he was made energy minister and 2018, he was then made finance minister, um, partly because Erdogan again feeling besieged, he just wanted someone to control everything, i.e. himself with his family. Um, but al Bayrak hasn't really got um, the right kind of experience. Um, so as soon as he became finance minister, the markets, you know, the era crashed again. And um, it's been in a really bad state for the past two years. So um, he's effectively been doing the kind of things that Erdogan wants him to do. It's not raise interest rates, do anything but that to try and combat um, inflation. And um, when uh, the lira kept rising, he just ended up making the central bank spend lots of money. Its reserves have gone and it simply wasn't working. And uh, eventually, because he's not popular, he doesn't really know what he's doing and he hasn't got the confidence of the markets, it became... You know, after uh, COVID struck as well, it's sort of crunch time where Erdogan just thought he has to do something. I think also about 30 or 40 of his party MPs had threatened to resign um, if Al Bayrak didn't go because he insulted them, he insulted the, um, the voters. Um, and that wouldn't be so bad if he was any good at his job, but he wasn't. And so eventually Erdogan sacrificed him. And the reason is because he, he wants money. There's no foreign, the foreign investors have been fleeing um, quite a lot of it to do with Al Bayrak's position, um, because also Al Bayrak succeeds um, succeeded um, a minister um, Mehmet Shimshek, who came from Merrill Lynch. He was respected in the markets, and um, every time Erdogan made some ridiculous pronouncement, he would go running off to the um, international banks and say he's talking rubbish. Um, it's fine, trust me. And um, these banks, they did trust him because he was respected and also they wanted to trust him. Al Bayrak couldn't achieve that kind of um, uh, uh, that kind of confidence. 
so um, altogether, he was just a bit of a disaster. <laughs> and I think it just came to the end when Aradon thought, I've got no money. I'm having a rebellion in the party. There's also the personal issue with Al-Bayrak that um, Aradon's family, you know, part members of his family aren't that keen on him. His Aradon's son Bilal is said to hate him. There are issues around the marriage which aren't really written about because everyone would go to jail if they did. But I think there's sort of been allegations of things going on in the marriage which Aradon's family didn't like. So he's out of the picture for now. Um, and no one's that sorry about it. So the, the parallels are actually really deep, aren't they? I mean, I suppose that Al Barak is a, was a much more front of house figure compared to Dominic Cummings, but right down to the fact that there were family tensions similar to what we know about uh, Boris Johnson and, and Carrie Simmons. Um, the headline on your article in, in this week's print edition is, is Turkey changing tack? And much as the way that people are being briefed that the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane means there's going to be a reset in Boris Johnson's government. There's hints that this may be the beginning of a broader reset in, in Erdogan's policies. Is that, it, is that correct? It's, it's a possibility. It's what everyone's hoping for. The, um, the lira is still higher than it was before, um, before Al-Bayrak was um, sacked. So, you know, the markets are expecting it. Um, it's a possibility, but sort of similar to um, Boris's reset, you know, the problem isn't just the one person. The problem is still there. The, the, uh, many of the people who are instrumental in causing the problems are still there. So I think I'd be cautious to say that it's going to be this huge epiphany. On the other hand, Aradon is really cornered. He, um, as I say, the, the Turkey needs foreign investment. It's, um, it's in real trouble. And so he has to do a lot of things to regain confidence and he has to stop he has to stop talking really i mean what happened you know when albayrak came in the markets crashed but also when Erdogan started talking in uh, to bloomberg i think about the economy the markets crashed because most of what he says is for the domestic market which is complete the polar opposite of what the international community needs to hear and so um he uh he needs to um, follow through on all the things he said so that he says he's going to you know the economy is going to be more predictable and conventional um, that they're going to actually rediscover the rule of law they're going to um, you know engage uh, diplomatically with the EU and America um, in a way that they haven't recently they're going to be less belligerent all these things Turkey needs to do and I think he knows that um, so the hope the positive side is he, he's just got to do this and um, it's this interesting, someone, uh, a Turkish economist pointed out, who's close to Erdogan, wrote this quite surprisingly um, conciliatory article, which effectively said, yes, it's all very well, we can't be the slave of the West, but actually the money's in the West and there's not a lot in the East, so we need to refocus. So that's, that's quite, a, quite a big imperative. He had he made, just made a speech recently um, as a, a European uh, summit um, next month, and he made a speech saying that he was very committed to Europe and um, we're on, you know, we're not turning away from you. Um, there's also, of course, a big uh, factor here is Joe Biden. Yeah. Because although um, uh, Trump wasn't, uh, you couldn't really call him a consistent ally of Erdogan, they were both random enough to sort of work around each other and not notice. And so um, Erdogan knows now that they've got a more grown up administration 
they're not huge fans of his um, because, of course, Erdogan um, clashed with Obama as well when uh, Biden was there. So um, the, he knows that he's going to be held to account for quite a few things. And even if I think the Biden administration doesn't want to go all out and declare war on Erdogan and I think want to do more of a carrot than a stick, um, he knows that he's not going to get away with things and he knows that it's not in his interest. So there's a lot of reasons why he would want to reset. On the other hand, there's a lot of reasons why he's going to find it incredibly difficult to do that. Um, one major reason is his coalition partner, the, uh, the Nationalist Party, um, who's led by a sort of far-right dinosaur, David Bartoli, who came into the power when um, Erdogan lost a lot of support from the sort of more centrist liberals, the Kurds. And um, although it's a smaller party, Erdogan loses voters to the right. He doesn't lose them to the left. He's, got, he's only really got the right left now. Um, right remaining now, I should say. Um, so he needs to be careful of Bahçeli, who's very, very um, strident, anti-Western, anti any sort of right, really. So he's got that as a problem. He's also got the fact that he's consolidated so much power in his own super presidency and he's abolished, there's no more prime minister, he's abolished the prime ministry, prime minister's office. And um, anything that he does has to unwind this power which I'm not sure he's going to enjoy doing. And he might want to pretend to do it, but I think he knows that he's got a lot of power that he needs to keep um, for various reasons. So um, it's going to be quite difficult. He's entrenched himself in a lot of arguments. He needs to pull back at the same time as persuading that his, his domestic base, that he's still as, as radical and nationalist and um, you know, tub-thumping independent leader as um, they think he is. Um you also write about, and probably people will be aware of this, um, very Europe literate uh, listeners of the New European podcast, um, Erdogan's developed this sideline beef with Emmanuel Macron following yes. his reaction to the murder of a school teacher by a Chechen jihadist. Uh, I think he suggested that Macron needed to see a, a therapist. Um, I mean, <laughs> when he was prime minister years ago, um, Whenever you'd read, say, in The Economist about Erdogan, he'd always be prefixed by Turkey's mildly Islamist prime minister. Um, has he moved away from that to a, to a more um, pro-Islamism position? And is that more political than anything else? He's, I mean, when he first came, he really, I think, almost genuinely, he thought, I'm going to be a Muslim Democrat, like a Christian Democrat. I, you know, he was devout, his family's devout, his wife wears a headscarf, his daughters wear headscarves, but he was also quite pragmatic and a businessman. And he, he honestly thought that if I deliver to my people, the European Union, I make all these reforms, they're gonna like me. And um, so he was mildly Islamist in the sense that he was quite devout, but he didn't, he wanted to be very careful politically. He knew that they'd jump on him every time he did that. I think when he discovered that all he, he didn't really, um, endear himself very much, even when he was more reformist. Um, he moved away from that. I mean, if you, when he came in, you know, in the first years, first of all, all the secularists or millions of secularist elite supporters, I'd say, marched in the streets against him. The military, it's in 2007, they tried to push him, tried to push him out, even though the military was supposed to be you know, more apolitical now. Um, the Supreme Court, tried to shut him down by one vote, his party survived. 
Um, in the meantime, he went very, very close to changing, well, he did change Turkey's narrative on Cyprus and he um, got the Turkish Cypriots to vote in favor for a UN plan for reunification that the Greek Cypriots opposed because they knew they were going to join the EU anyway, as, as they have, and now they're a huge thorn inside of Turkey and its um, accession process. So he had, um, and in this, Sarkozy was, Nicolas Sarkozy was very, very anti Erdogan, Angela Merkel, when she came in, she said she didn't want Turkey to have full membership of the EU. So he's got this history of trying quite hard and being rebuffed. Um, and then, of course, in the, you know, in 2013, there was a mass protest in the street, which he thought was an Arab Spring in Turkey. I think he really panicked. He that's when he became real authoritarian. Um, he was drifting in that direction, but that was a real key. Then he had this fight within the party, was um, within the government, with all these supporters and the, of um, he claims this cleric, Muslim cleric, who's in America, who he'd actually courted in the first place, and um, then uh, came on to a, an attempted coup in uh, 2016. So he's he's see, he's been he feels he's got this real victim narrative in his head. So in terms of the Islamists, he's he's tried to hide his or you know rein in his Islamist um, instincts, but he has moved in various ways to make Turkey a little more Muslim. I mean, the latest thing was you know opening Hagia Sophia, this great you know Byzantine yeah. basilica to Islam Muslim prayer, which it, it had been had done for you know, a thousand years before when he was in the or you know, 500 years before when it was in the Ottoman Empire. But so he's he's given more signs of being more Islamist, but actually the problem isn't the Islamism so much as the nationalism and the authoritarianism. And that's the that's his main problem. And that's the main problem I would see as a sort of, you know, someone who grew up in Turkey and likes would like Turkey to become more modern and more European. For me, the big problem is his nationalism and that's really cemented with his coalition partner um, now, but he's, he's, he's had, um, it's, uh, he's had, he's been on a journey, let's say, and it's not ended up in a good place for him or the country. Um, one, one final question before we let you go. Um, one of the possibly key moments in the Brexit campaign was Leave.eu's claim that Turkey was about to join the EU with, you know, 82 million Turks immediately heading for Dover. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the idea of Turkish membership of the EU, is that now, is that now dead completely? I don't think it can ever, I think it would take a lot for it to completely die, both from the point of Turkey and from the EU. I mean, in terms of Turkey, a lot of foreign investment, even though it's absent now, is sort of linked to it. It's always been a driver of Turkey um, moving forward. And even Erdogan used it at the beginning to you know, um, make reforms that allowed people with headscarves to get more role in in public life. I mean, they were actually discriminated against and it was EU linked laws that um, gave them more freedom. So, and, and politically, Turkey hasn't got anywhere to go. It's not going to become an e Eastern, Eastern country instead of a Turkish one. I think that was always a, um, a bit of a false narrative that Turkey was moving away from the West and turning eastward. He was trying to, you know, he wanted a lot of cash from the East. He liked that he was, um, respected in the East, although I think even the Arab streets got fed up from the moment. So, because he's been sort of tub thumping and not doing anything that helps the region. So I think he always wanted to straddle the two. 
Um, but the EU has always been um, a focus. And I, don't, I think he knows that it's a bad idea to break it off completely. He's managed to do a lot of things um, while not incurring any sanctions from the EU. He sort of sees a lot of what they say as empty threats. Now, the, the talks of not really going anywhere, um, but even if they're frozen indefinitely, I can't see them completely being broken off. And from the EU's point as well, point of view as well, you know, it's a, it's a strong country and a big, important geopolitical position. It's a NATO ally. They don't want him not being a, they don't want Turkey against them really. So I think um, it'll rumble on miserably, um, going better and worse for ages. I can't say I can see when Turkey would join, but I don't think it's going to um, break off completely or irrevocably. It'll just be frozen. It'll be very interesting to see who is in the EU first, Turkey or us again. Um, <laughs> yes. Maybe maybe decades away. Um, hey, it's it, really good to speak to you. It's a, it's a great article. And people can find this now in all non-essential shops. Uh, it's £3. Thank you very much, Suna. Thank you. Brilliant. That was very insightful. I was, yeah, really I mean, not as highbrow, sorry, more highbrow than we're used to, frankly, on this podcast. So thank you very much for that. Um, uh, let's get back to the news. Um, so we've had a spending review this week. Um, I guess we should go to cash first, aptly named for a spending review. What do you think of, uh, what do you think of that? There wasn't a lot of surprises, was there? No, not really. I mean, I think that, I guess the big, the big surprise, um, but not surprising by the same token is that, um, Brexit just was not mentioned, um, mm -hmm. which is just like, it's like, I couldn't, I couldn't really believe, I mean, I can believe it politically why they wouldn't want to mention Brexit because ultimately it will compound what is already a miserable landscape as laid out by Rishi Sunak, but sort of beyond the political, in inverted commas, motivation behind that decision, I just couldn't rationalize why when you're laying out your spending, you know, your spending review, why you're la laying out the projections for the economy that you omit this i mean it's bigger than an elephant in the room it's like an albatross in the room it, it was bizarre um but I, I i guess that that was a surprise to me um not least because in the time since it's obviously been confirmed that you know by the obr that brexit will be as destructive if not more so than than you know any of us even thought and i guess rishi sunak didn't want to i guess um detract from the cinematic delivery of a spending review. He loves the cinematic delivery, doesn't he? He's, um, <laughs> he's got this thing where he says things that are ostensibly bad, but frames in a way in a way that kind of manipulates people into thinking it's good news. But that's uh, sort of a different issue. But in terms of surprises, no, there weren't really any beyond the Brexit um, element. What I'd say is that people within the public sector can be rightly pissed off. Um, but not surprised. It's a different kind of emotion, I suppose. Um, and I guess for me, that was one of the biggest things is the public sector kind of um, freeze. And with the exception of the 2.1 million workers who are getting a very generous 250 pound pay rise, um, but only if they earn under the median wage of 24,000. And when he, when he did that, I thought, well, all that does is highlight is that the median wage is low and people that earn below that shouldn't be. Um, so it doesn't really redress the issue as such. So yeah, those are my two main takeaways, the omission of Brexit and um, the, the public sector pay freeze slash slight reprieve for low earners. Mm, Matt? Well, my main takeaway is that Cash thinks that an albatross is bigger than an elephant. Is um, it not? So... <laughs> oh yeah, oh, that's the bird, isn't it? This, yeah. is, I might, this, this is so funny. My 
my animal knowledge is like a real weird like spot that I don't. Ooh, let's do what's bigger then. No, don't because I went to Canada <laughs> on holiday a few years ago and my friends took me to a park and spent an hour pointing at birds saying duck or goose and I or sorry swan or goose and I got them all wrong so please don't. I mean, swan or goose is a little bit more tricky than albatross or elephant. I have to say, it's 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 hard. What I lack in animal knowledge, I make up for in something else that I'll reveal later. I was I was thinking maybe you were comparing the um the, the great song albatross with an elephant. Maybe the song. Sadly, I wasn't. I just I was just wrong. <laughs> I'm trying to help you out. Gosh. I know, but I, I feel like sometimes it's better just to like take your licks and yes, that that, that my animal knowledge is absolutely atrocious. Uh-huh. Matt. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, this was basically um, Rishi Sunak parking the worst of it. I don't know any great surprises in there. You know, letting borrowing rise while <clears throat> servicing costs are so low, while supporting jobs and health, you know, broadly makes sense. Um, there's a broken Conservative manifesto promise in there, the cut to the overseas aid budget from 0.7% to 0.5%, yeah. um, which is Sorry, very odd. Cha- I mean, that is actually a change, that is actually a change in the law. It is, yeah, it it is, is yeah. although I believe that the um, that the actual legislation says that it can be overridden. Yes, I believe that's the case. I mean, it's fine, with a, it's fine with, a, with a vote. I think the thing that disappointed me slightly with that, and it is an important point, this, and I'm very proud um, in the amounts of money that this country is, and I know why. Let's not just pre- let's not pretend. Proud was the wrong word, but let's not pretend that Britain just goes around building walls for people, you know, like gap year students. Um, there is an element of soft power involved in our overseas oh, uh, and overseas oh, uh, spend as well, but that's fine. You know, I can live with that. I can live with that absolutely. Um, you know, and I think that's I think that's fair. Um, and it is it is great. I, I I you know, and I the fact that I think only Germany spends more than us per head or uh, in one of the of the major nations. I think is great. I think we should spend more if if anything. Um, however, it's a difficult sell currently to make it not point seven percent. So not point five it is. It is but-, but what disappointed me, um, and I would have been happy for it to stay at not point seven. But but what disappointed me was that he said it would go to not point five until the economy recovers. Now, you could argue we'll all that be dead. for many years, many, many years to come, and I would have been much... Uh, that, would have, that would have been... I would have been much happier if he'd said, we will review that on an annual basis or... Yeah, I agree with that. I think but he also, left it purposely vague. As a percentage, it already falls when GDP shrinks. That is the point of it being yes. a percentage. So, I mean, this was a... This felt very political. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, it's, yeah, it, 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 this is not going to upset anybody in the so-called uh, Red Wall. You know, I think their, their thinking is this is very, you know, what is it, Islington dinner party stuff. Um, <laughs> basically, our listeners. Uh, basically, <laughs> the um, chapter in classes. <laughs> yeah. Um, listeners, how do you feel about this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, oh, it's a disgrace. Um, <laughs> no, pa- pa- pass the olive oil. he's he's ditched the manifesto commitment and at some point he's gonna have to ditch his commitment to no tax rises and everybody knows that um and at some point he's gonna have to say that but at the moment he's very much enjoying the um being the father christmas you know splashing the cash everyone loves dishy rishy character but um that that's not going to last the year. You know? Well, that I think, takes. I think sorry, the veneer is starting to. I think the veneer of that is starting to wear off, though, mm. um, because I do. You're right, Matt, in the sense that at the start, like you know, he, you know, he was basically making it rain. Like I hope people do it. Me do 
uh, to me when I walked down the street post-apocalypse sort of like um, Richard was saying earlier that was a throwback that was a callback to an earlier reference <laughs> listeners might not remember and I didn't execute it very well but we I digress but the um but the point is he was making it he was making a sort of rain at the start he was sort of giving money here there and everywhere and of course that's going to make a person popular and a politician popular particularly a conservative politician because it feels really anathema to what the usual um way of being is but that i mean that is starting to wear off because i think people are really starting to see that i mean first of all it's not sustainable i guess for one secondly they've already broken the manifesto pledge with um foreign aid so and as matt says they will probably break another one in terms of tax rises and no amount of sort of like sort of very nice um and nice is a terrible word for this but very you know eye-catching and you know amiable sort of branding and you know PR essentially there's a lot of sort of PR and kind of like almost branding around Rishi Sunak that kind Mm. of sort of portrays him as this kind of far removed conservative from the typical conservative way and I I just don't think it's I don't think it's quite I don't think it it quite reads it doesn't quite hook up for me anymore so because of that the veneer will start to is starting to wear off and I think that will only serve that will only continue to happen and i think it started to truthfully mm. i mean my view, my view on rishi is that we don't really know what kind of conservative he is yet because... i don't think he knows i think he's just sort of like he's dipping his toe in and seeing what well, is going to make him potentially prime ministerial material yeah well i i mean i mean i think he already i think he already is that but he, you know he's he's a very he's good he's a good orator he's uh he's clearly slick i think he could be statesmanlike but we don't we don't know much about Rishi the the man, and I, I you know, uh, the politician. Sorry, and I, I, we did a piece um, in one of our newspapers where I use the headline Rishi Nomics, but of course we don't know what Rishi Nomics is either because it's been thrown into COVID omics. You know, the, yeah, there really fair. wasn't a great deal of choice for this chancellor. Um, he he. He had to act like he did. I'm, a, you know, I was a support of the furlough scheme. I think there's been some good, you know, credit where it's due. Um, but, but we don't yet know what kind of chancellor he is, and and for that reason, we don't yet know what kind of prime minister he would be. But I think he is probably top of the pop. So I wasn't sure about that hoodie with a suit underneath. Matt, do you like to wear a hoodie and a suit underneath? Um, I've never worn a hoodie with. You've fact, never. Have you ever I, worn a hoodie? I bought my first hoodie uh, a couple of weeks ago. Because um, so you know. I now own one. Yeah. You are a very sharp, sharp dressed. I've not seen you for getting on for probably a year now, but you know, when I did used to see you, you're very sharp, sharply I'm, dressed. Mate. I'm you're a suit and tie guy, but yeah. um, I now own a hoodie which has the Commodore 64 logo. Oh, very nice. I have a logic, If you and Rishi Sunak both own hoodies and wear them, does that mean you could be the next chancellor? <laughs> oh, I don't think anybody would think that that was a good idea. Um, fit, sure, Matt sure Withers would have fit in perfectly in the Cummings cane. Oh, um. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, I mean, I'm making a, 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 you know, I don't, I don't wish to bring us back to a serious point, but um, <laughs> dur- this, this is not episode one. <laughs> <laughs> during, um, during all the. Uh, the turmoil over um, Brexit, particularly when May was in office, um, I got very, very frustrated at the fact that there were some journalists who who saw everything 
through who's up and who's down. So, you know, it looked like we were going to crash out of the EU with no deal. And people are like, oh, my God, I wonder what this means for, like, Penny Mordant's ambitions. Or, you know, and they'd be like, well, that's not really the deal here. It's more kind of like, are people going to die because we can't get medicines over the over the border? And I think people have been very guilty of, of, of that. Um, so it seems a bit odd to be talking about, you know, people's prime ministerial ambitions um, when we're going through a downturn worse than any since the war of Spanish succession. But... Um, yeah, if we're going to talk about uh, Sunak's um, chances, um, he is going to, as I've already alluded to, he's going to make himself very, very unpopular with his parliamentary party in mm. the next year or two. Um, spending cuts or tax rises, and probably both, are going to be necessary. Uh, not many of his parliamentary colleagues are going to want to hear that. Um, the, the new voter base, the, the kind of red wall, um, their MPs are serving constituencies which have been promised big infrastructure spending, spending splurges. But for that, he's going to need to raise taxes. And most Tory MPs are against that. You know, no Conservative Chancellor who explicitly raises taxes is going to easily make it into, into number 10. So, uh, you know, as we've already said, he's, he's got this kind of um, strange protective cloak around him at, at the moment. But when he has to be forced to make difficult decisions, and it might not be something that even his own Prime Minister agrees with, He's going to make himself very unpopular with a lot of Tory MPs. Do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. Do you think, in that case, because you know I like to offer advice to to MPs that he should actually pounce before before that comes and try and topple Boris? If there was a viable route or avenue for something like maybe not topple, but you know, perhaps if there was a viable route for some kind of uh, assertion. If Boris gets Brexit done, Boris is not enjoying his time as Prime Minister, is he? Oh, he, God, needs, no. he needs more money. Hardest graft he's ever done. And, and he's realised it's actually hard work. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think the general feeling seems to be that Boris Johnson will not be the Tory leader going into the next election. Maybe Rishi could push him out the door a little bit before he has to make any of these tough decisions and stick some other poor bugger in number 11. He could well do. I mean, I think I think he's probably politically, um, he's certainly got the political ambition to maybe execute something like that, I think. And, you know, there's there's no doubt in my mind that he is clearly a very astute politician. And I don't mean that entirely as a compliment. I mean, in the sense that, you know, is he the youngest ever chancellor? Have I got that right? Um, uh, I think Osborne was young, slightly younger, he's actually. Slightly but he's... Younger. The second youngest ever chancellor. His political ambitions and his political ceiling, you know, are clearly incredibly high. And if an opportunity like that were to remotely present itself, um, I, I have no, I have no doubt that he would try and take it. And I wanted to make a couple of additional points, sort of as an extension of what Matt just said. The first being that you're right in the sense that he will make himself unpopular with Tory MPs by making decisions, particularly relating to tax rises, that will cause a lot of criticism and consternation. But mm. I think he benefits from being a chancellor that can always position himself as, I was in a unique position. How would you have done it? No yeah. one really knows but me yeah. what, you, what you know, I have the best insight and the unique insight as to what needed to be done in this unique set of circumstances. So I think he benefits from that. But also, I think he benefits from the counterbalance of Boris Johnson being so woefully abject and having a command of detail that most four-year-olds would probably outstrip. Yeah. Um, and I think he benefits from being a real sort of dovetail to that. So while I agree with Matt that his decision-making will probably make him be, or sort of be conducive to him becoming unpopular. I think he can hide behind the unique position he's in and also 
he's got the political awareness and capacity that is so far superior to the prime minister that he almost seems like a consummately safe pair of hands. So mm. I think that does help him. Um, but it was weird, the hoodie thing. It's like, you don't need to show that you're a man of the people. We know you're not. Stop trying. It's, it's okay. I just wondered if he was a bit, you know, a bit, uh, bit, bit tight of cash, buns, buns of his ass sort of thing, and he decided to put a, put a hoodie on rather than the heating. Yeah, I think he maybe didn't top up the meter or something. Yeah. Um, but it was funny because he, the, in terms of, you're talking about like the, the furlough scheme before Richard, like when you said that, I was immediately struck by, yes, that was the scheme that immediately, I think, drew a lot of people to him and sort of made everyone think, okay, well, you know, he's a conservative, but we can let this go because he's like the right kind of guy. But actually, a lot of the impact of that for me was diminished by the fact that they only extended it because the scientific evidence was so overwhelming and they did it at like, you know, the last possible second. So while the scheme in, in and of itself was good and a generous thing, Firstly, other countries' equivalent schemes were, were much longer. And secondly, the scheme was only extended when it absolutely had to be. I think I think we, and this is not me um, picking you up, Kasha, but I think we need to be careful with language because it, it wasn't generous, really, was it? It was what was needed. And that mm. the, the government is spending our money. You know, sometimes we seem to, we look, oh, they've been, they've been well, look at all, they, they've been yeah. so nice, you know, and they're, they're not being nice. This, this, yeah. this is money, this is our money. You know, we, I think it's when I say cash. generous, it's like generous in the context of what we I know. Yeah, like, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Oh, you're right. You're, you're, you are right. It's, you're, you're, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Richard. It's the fact that, you know, it's we shouldn't see it as, oh, we're so lucky for this to yeah. be bestowed upon us. We should be like, well, it's our money. and It's our money. I just think yeah, I with the, the, the reason I think I was um, pleased with the furlough scheme was, and 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 remain supportive of it, certainly the, you know, I think there are, I, I would, I, would, I support um, Labour's sector, sector by sector um, plan as well, because the hospitality sector, for example, tourism sector is going to be absolutely devastated if they if they can't continue furloughing people what well, we know now that they're probably going to be able to, you know that now that it's been been put back in that's not going to be an issue but the the um it it, it felt like when it dropped it felt like there'd been panic in government before that and then this felt like something tangible like someone had made a decision this is what we're going to do this is going to help people and it felt to me like that was the first time really that the government actually got something right at the beginning yeah um and i think they then had this purple patch and i got a lot of heat about this at the time because i was quite supportive of the initial after we got over that hump and we went into lockdown i thought the government was doing okay and then and then it just fell apart like, you know, like nothing I think I've ever experienced before. You know, mm. as soon, well, before, before, but it was all over as soon as he went to Barnard Castle, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the turning point for sure. <laughs> we yeah. have, we have overrun. So why don't we take a, why don't we take a little break and then we will come back after this with um, Cash's uh, rant of the week, Cash and Burn. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, guys, I just had a thought. It's Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to all our American listeners. As we record it, it's Thanksgiving. I always take the Friday after Thanksgiving off, not because I like to do my non-essential shopping on Black Friday, but because I'm really sad and I stay up and watch American football late on a Thursday night. So I'm off tomorrow 
Um, but I've just, uh, Thanksgiving always sort of spells to me and the sort of Christmas period sort of starts, doesn't it, after that? So we're, we're pretty Christmassy, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, me neither. I'm not putting decks up or anything. In fact, I never do. But, you know, this is the start of Christmas. And obviously, we're going to be in these tiers now until I think they're going to be looked at every two weeks. But the majority of the country is going to be in some kind of tiered system, isn't it? Between now and when the when when COVID takes Christmas off, of course, between the twenty third and the twenty seventh. Yep. Now Chris Rea is from I think he's from the northeast somewhere. He's from Middlesbrough, I think. right? And and I reckon he lives in Berkshire. Now, if he's driving home for Christmas, he's going to be going from probably tier two to almost certainly tier three. Is he going to have to self isolate? Do we think Chris Rear goes back to Middlesbrough at Christmas? <laughs> Do we? Where That's else does he drive to? Oh, I don't know. I'm going back to I'm going back to Ireland for Christmas, and I need to check what zone. I think it'll be zone two also. Um, I think you'll be all right. I'm not sure you have to self isolate actually, but I think Chris Rear has got a. Maybe Chris Rear should just think twice this year. That's all I'm saying. And well, Christmas songs are in the news, of course, because we've got the greatest Christmas song of all time being played or not being played on Radio 1 as well. So maybe maybe this year they shouldn't play Chris Rea's Driving Home for Christmas because we don't want to encourage people to leave a higher tier into a lower tier. So it would, I might actually complain if they play that. Yeah, I think you should. I think you should write a strongly worded letter. I will. I will. Is Points of View still on, Matt? I, I don't think so. I think you might be betraying your age there. Oh, I loved Points of View with Anne Robinson. She used to do a little wink at the end, like she always did. That was. Yeah, uh, did Terry Wogan do it before Anne Robinson? I think he did, didn't he? Cash, <sighs> you've never heard of Points of View, have you? Uh, is there a right answer to that question? It was a 10-minute <laughs> programme that was on, I think it was on a Thursday evening, just about 10 I've heard 10 of Anne Robinson, hours. if that helps, because she presented The Weakest Link. She did. It, Thursday night, was, there was, it was Big Shop day thursday and then the telly was brilliant because you had top of the pops then you had top gear and then you had points of view it was a big night in my house good good good, good times big night and uh one act that would have been on top of the pops in fact were they yeah they almost certainly were were the manic street preachers and they are matt's been in touch and they're considering whether to re-record slash and burn their um their hit from their first album generation terrorist which is all about cystitis, to cash and burn. They may, they may do that, Matt. Is that right? Yeah. Um, James Dean Bradfield vividly recalled the fleeting conversation <laughs> we had um, outside the Conway about 15 years ago, and he's, uh, yeah, he's been bang up for it. You're he's basically up. brothers. That's fantastic. Well, I, if anyone knows the Manic Street Preachers, I'm sure they'd be up for this. They're, they're a good bunch, aren't they? Does it further implicate me if I stress at this point that this segment and is not about <laughs> me having cystitis? Because I think now people are going to assume that that's what it's about. Um, and while, if and when that happens, I'll be happy to share it with you all. Not currently the setup. <laughs> well, I mean, if we were to call it slash and burn, then it might be. But remember, it's called cash and burn. Correct. So... It's got, this segment has got absolutely nothing to do with cystitis. But Cash, I think we've waffled on, rambled long enough. Over to you. Who is the Pillock of the Week, Cash and Burn? Okay, so I feel like this one, um, conversely with last week, I am actually just picking one individual. Um, and it's probably a really obvious one, and I might lose points for that, but it's got to be Ben Bradley, um, Mansfield <laughs> MP. I mean, it's 
it's a, it's an answer that picks itself really and the reason that i've chosen him beyond the the wild array of reasons is i don't know if listeners sort of would have seen this or if you guys have this week but he was actually talk sort of taken apart by martin luther king's own daughter um in terms of he did a tweet since deleted or he wrote a tweet since deleted um with martin luther king's um sort of infamous quote you know i have a dream and totally misinterpreted it and uh, made a massive tit of himself and she actually <laughs> she actually retweeted it and and sort of basically said no this is not what i mean uh in fact what i mean is everything else and if i had my phone in front of me to read it to you verbatim i i would do um but i don't unfortunately however i would encourage listeners to sort of go and just 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 look it up because the response to that was hilarious it was i mean first of all it takes a lot of that the, the threshold for shame for Ben ba- Bradley to actually delete a tweet must be is really high because he says loads of shit, but he deleted this one. <laughs> did he actually delete it? Yeah, she deleted it, but she she she's great. I mean, it, I don't know if she knows what trolling is, but she's an expert at it because she clearly screenshotted the tweet before it was deleted and did sort of a couple of follow up tweets confirming that he was in fact wrong and her father's message was this and she screenshotted, she put the picture of the tweet and saying, this is the tweet I'm responding to. So just so like everyone could see just the true extent of his absolute tool-like behavior, um, which I which I thought was great. Um, and t- not the actual, not him doing it, but the fact that Martin Luther King's daughter took him apart and shamed him into deleting a tweet, uh, which I just thought was delicious. And as an extension of that, I actually saw uh, i went onto his profile uh, i didn't immediately burst into flames that was positive but i went onto his profile and he in his um blurb says that he is the first blue brick in the red wall and my immediate thought was that is really harsh on bricks <laughs> they have shown themselves to be infinitely more useful it sounds actually, like a misspelling <laughs> no honestly it's, it's, the first blue brick in the red wall is what he calls himself and i dare I say it, I actually went on to a website called brickarchitecture.com, genuinely, um, because I wanted to sort of look at how useful are bricks, real bricks, not Ben Bradley. And I got, there. this website contains 10 reasons why bricks are useful. I won't list them all because I don't want to bore you, but basically three of them really stuck out um, to me. The first was long lifespan without maintenance. Doesn't sound like Ben Bradley's political career. Secondly, well, the second reason was durable and precious. The third reason was comfortable and sturdy, all adjectives that have been used to describe me. So those were three of the 10 reasons why bricks are useful. Um, and actually, I feel like it's a bit harsh that Ben is modeling himself on an item that is infinitely more useful than he will ever be. Um, and sort of, I, I guess, just to bring it to a very sort of a more succinct conclusion, succinct conclusion, pardon me, than, than last week, just two of his worst ever other offenses the recent one uh, being in the International Men's Day debate, he advocated for a minister for men. And without being too, not without being too political, but I'm not going to go down a really, you know, a really massive tangent on this. But I mean, he just missed the point of absolutely everything with that particular sentiment. I mean, oh, it, I disagree. You should have gone one further. We need a minister for white middle-aged men. Yeah, I mean, I think they're chronically underrepresented. Like they really need, they need a break. Um, and no, but you're so right. It's he, but he just missed the point of absolutely everything. I mean, I actually just briefly looked at one of the main reasons why we need a minister for women and we don't need one for men. And this is not, you know, in any way sort of to be rude against men. It's just that we still have a huge gender pay gap. That's the one reason I'm going to give in this particular rant. 
you know, the latest ONS figures actually showed that the pay gap for full-time employees in terms of gender is 15.5%. So that reason is one of many why we need a minister for women and Ben Bradley is chatting absolute shit. Um, and then the final thing, just that he said that unemployed people should get vasectomies. I hope everyone remembers that particular little tidbit from a couple of years ago, which he hopes has been forgotten, but uh, I haven't forgotten it. Um, and yeah, that's that's my cash and burn non-societist version of um, a rant against Ben Bradley. Is uh, Am I getting mixed up with another um, uh, um, blue brick? Um, he wasn't the one who talked about how people in the South's culture evolved around opera and no, that was some. That was someone else. I know that was like the MP um, in a Southampton constituency. I think somewhere in. I think, but I do know. I, I remember that quote. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't Ben Bradley. No, he's. It, ben it just feels like it should have been him. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel like it should have been him. It should have been him as well. Actually, you're right. He's the MP for Mansfield, I believe. Um, ben Bradley, and he is. Um, he's proving to be a proper Wally, isn't he? He's. Wally's he's only a young man, you know. He's only thirty years old. Um, so he's crammed a lot of stupidity into um, only only just three decades, uh, and he he's the chairman of Blue Collar Conservatives. I think he just th- he's he's sort of lynched. He sort of clicked onto that blue in the red bit, hasn't he? And he's just yeah, going. Like, he went to a private school that cost fourteen thousand pounds a year. He's no more blue collar than you know Jacob Rees Mogg is. You know, it's 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 just it's just bizarre. And I mean, he's he's a year older than me. Good God. Um, but he, I mean, I just, he's just, he's just pretty awful, isn't he? Um, and yeah, per Mansfield, that'd be, that'd be my, that'd be my argument. Yeah. The qual- the quality of the MP, the Tory MPs in the, the so-called red wall, um, is, is not great. Um, a lot of these people weren't expected to no. win those seats and therefore. Well, he arrived before though. He arrived, he, he arrived in 2017. Yeah. He's been MP for three years now. Okay. And he's been rubbish for all three of them. Um, he... But he's managed to just about, like, I mean, he's managed to just offend every single group of people that I, I mean, it, it's quite a feat, really. He just, I don't know, he, he just strikes me as someone that is completely delusional in the sense that he thinks that a lot of the things that he says are going to have a popular reception because he's just totally misguided in terms of, you know, what is the right and wrong sort of thing to think and, and, to form your opinions on the basis of it, yeah, he's he's pretty repulsive. All in. Well, let's let's just remind people of a few other bits of Bradley insight because you mentioned that um, in some blog posts in um, uh, about ten years ago, I think he said um, that uh, the unemployed, a vast sea of unemployed wasters, yep. and he said they should have vasectomies. He then said, now this was after, and I don't know about you, Cash, but I imagine, Matt, you were living in London during the rights, and I certainly was. Um, He said um, in 2011, three days after Mark Duggan was killed in Tottenham, that's what sparked the terrible rights we saw in 2011. um, uh, For once, I think priest brutality should be encouraged, he said. Um, That was insightful. Thanks for that. Um, He also said, um, public sector workers, they don't know they're born. I bet he was out there um, clapping, however. Um, and it, the list goes on, actually. There's even more. Yeah, yeah. He, oh, wait a minute. Uh, Bradley claimed that on, online that Ashfield District Council had spent £17,000 paying an Indian company to call local residents from a call centre in Mumbai. That was not true. Um, he said, I admit the post about using Indian call centre was untrue, and I took it down. 
I was just emphasizing the point that the council was wasting money by lying. <laughs> if you go on his Wikipedia page, there's actually tons of it. Um, uh, yeah. He, oh, he had a go at a local journalist as well. That was. Oh, he yeah, got, I remember that. Yeah, he got into. He's got um, a serious rap sheet for like for, for one so young. Just for nonsense. He said that Jeremy Corbyn had sold British secrets to communist spies. Um, obviously, if you write something like that, you need to have some pretty good proof. Um, don't really and... think Ben Bradley deals in proof and evidence. Those, those kind of concepts feel a bit like out of his, um, bit above his pay grade. Um, yeah, and then of course he 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 only last month, in fact, he said that uh, free school meal vouchers uh, would be spending crack dens and brothels. That was yes, a... that's the other one. I, I forgot <laughs> about that one. I knew there was one in my mind that was really really bad, but I couldn't quite. Oh, I, I mean, we talked about myself and Steve talked about that at the time, you know, because uh, drug dealers will accept vouchers for uh, for sandwiches at Tesco. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, I hear they're like a huge fan of a meal deal. They just love it. <laughs> Absolutely, I'll have a, a sample of a may, packet may of I Monster Munch the... and, a, and a bacon sandwich for this for this crack of for this rock for this of crack. crack <laughs> may I read the full quote from from? Can yes, I read? Please, yes, yeah, please. Because I, I pulled it up. Sorry, I meant to have it up before and I, I I didn't. But basically, he 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 says, "I have a dream," and then does dot dot dot. Will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character? Everyone knows the famous quote. His his sort of analysis below. His point was that skin color doesn't matter. We're equal. Now you want to define people by their physical characteristics? Response. My father's point and central to his beliefs, teachings and activism, as per his speeches slash books, was this. We cannot condone racism, but must eradicate it as one of the most pervasive, systematic, overt, and destructive, triple evils with militarism and poverty being the other two. Mic drop. <laughs> yes, quite. He, but he, the thing is, he, he will, he'll just carry on. He's, he's not the sort of person who's going to learn from this. He will continue. Um, so, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bradley, congratulations. You were this week's Cash and Burn. We definitely need a jingle, Matt. If you could get on to James Dean Bradfield, that'd be great. Um, well, that is it. We have come to the end of another New European podcast. Thank you to uh, Suna Erdem who uh, came on and talked about Turkey uh, and, of course, to Cash Boyle, our wonderful uh, new co-host, Matt Withers, the man Pleasure. not only who helps me host this podcast, but also does all the fiddly behind-the-scenes bits and makes sure it gets in your ears on a Friday morning. Um, and uh, and thank you from me, Richard Porritt. You can follow me on Twitter, at Porritt, P-O-R-R-I-T-T, Cash. Uh, at Cash Boyle. Matt. At Matt Withers. We've all got really good Twitter handles, haven't we? We were early adopters. I mean, I, I'm gonna be straight on to change mine to at cash and burn. At cash and burn. Yeah. I'm not I'm not going to do that because the Sustainers rumors will absolutely blow up at that point. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. We will be back next week. Until then, Mr. Campbell, play your bagpipes. Here you go. <laughs>